Greetings in the name of the Lord. Welcome. Grace be with you. Peace. Shalom. Whatever greeting works. I am Cullen Cressman, and this is my attempt at a podcast. Hello, peeps. This is Breaking Theology, and thank you for listening. Today, we're going to be covering James chapter 2. Breaking Theology is simply a podcast that is like an audio commentary. I'll be walking through the verses of Scripture and just explaining things as I go. If you ever have any questions or you want to know more about a certain topic or something that I cover, feel free to contact me and Uh, You can find my contact information on different platforms where my podcast is listed. But also, if you will follow me on social media, on Facebook, Cullen Cressman, on Instagram, Cullen Doyle is my uh, username. If you follow me on social media, I will regularly post for questions before I record the chapter, and I will include your questions as I cover the content. But additionally... If there's ever a time where you want something covered in more depth or you feel like something needs to be answered with more clarity, you let me know, and I do not mind making bonus episodes for chapters that we have already covered. And so we are going to dive right in. In the previous episode on James chapter 1, I stopped short and did not actually uh, go through the end of the chapter. The reason for that is I believe that that's the... uh, at the at verse 25 it is the conclusion of the the introduction portion so as i've stated before i believe james is a sermon that he has a lot to say and has uh, a lot to say about wisdom good practice things like that but if we if we make james out just to be wisdom literature a couple of things happen one is it gets very disjointed two his his real thrust his his convicting message gets flattened to just uh, common things that we can do. So one way I explain this is when we discuss chapter one, that steadfastness. That if we if we just say that this is a really uh, cute saying about patience and trials making us a more patient people, we've really robbed a, a crucial piece of what James is talking about. This is one of the first letters written in the New Testament, and the church is going through persecution. You have to hold that in your head. Stephen has been killed. James himself, after this letter is written, James will be killed for the sake of the gospel. And so you have to understand that these words are not just about, um, uh, for lack of a better term, patty cake religion. It's not simply about nice little sayings that will help us in our day-to-day life. This is about the gospel and about living out the gospel. And so I believe the introduction for the sermon is finished around verse 25. And the reason I do this is because when the Bible was originally written, they didn't have chapter uh, references. They didn't have verse numbers on there. They didn't have the headings that you'll find in your Bible. And so I ignore all of those. I want to see what the the full picture is. What is, what is, if you read all of it together at one time, that's, that's what I want to know. What is, what is James trying to tell us? And so I want to jump into verse 26, chapter 1, verse 26, and that's where we'll start the discussion today. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, 
this person's religion is worthless. Okay, so this is, I'll give you my reasoning for why I believe this is going into the next point. We won't hear about the tongue again until you get to chapter 3. And I believe that this is uh, the beginning of a larger argument that James is weaving some important pieces here. And one of the ways he gets to where he's going to talk about the tongue again is through the lens of religion. Now, it's a very popular thing today to talk about religion versus relationship. And I just want to, uh, if I can just be myself here and just say, we need to tear that down. We need to forget about that. Get it out of your heads. That is not uh, a biblical distinction. And the reason I say that is not simply because of the Bible, but also because of culture, the time that the Bible was written. We live in a postmodern age, and so if we're not careful, we let those those ideas get into our heads. So when we read something about religion, especially what we're going to talk about here in a little bit, we can be consumed by our own current culture and world and lose a very significant point. For James, and especially for the world that he lived in, there is no separation of church and state. There is no separation of religion and relationship. If you say that you have a relationship with Jesus, you will be religious. And if you say that you are religious, that means you have a relationship with some God. And it was so significant, even to the point that Jewish people and early Christians were considered to be atheists because they only believed in one God and it limited their social practices. And there again is another point of the distinction between us and them through time is that their society, their social norms, the things that you did in society were connected to religious practices. You could not uh, even be a citizen. You demonstrated your religion in everything you did. And so when Jewish people and then early Christians at this time, when they abstained from social activities, they were abstaining from them because of religious reasons and purposes. They were demonstrating that they had a relationship with Jesus. So you can't use modern language, modern distinctions that we deal with today and start putting that on the Bible because you'll lose a big portion of the message that James and other portions of Scripture are trying to make. And the big thing we're going to talk about here is that you cannot separate your actions, your religion. And religion is important because it's going to be a community thing. Religion is not something that is man-made. Religion is something that we believe comes from God those mandates, but then we have to interpret those laws together as a community because if those laws are from God, and I'm jumping ahead of myself, but if there is one God, and if those laws are from that one God, he is the one God of the world, which means those laws, that religion has to apply to the world. So you can't do religion in isolation as a relationship the way that we use the term today. Our relationship with Jesus is going to push us to be in a community, and that community has to reflect God's desires. And so James has good things to say about this. If uh, a person's religion is worthless, if they do not bridle their tongue, and they will deceive their heart. And so remember, that's connected to verses before that. But religion that is pure and undefiled before God, the Father, is this to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Okay, so again, differences between our culture and theirs is we could think, yeah, look, there's there's good things, good things that we should do as orphans and widows. But you have to understand that at that time, for James to say orphans and widows would be completely foreign 
to his pagan surroundings. Orphans and widows were taken care of in God's law. Okay, so Jewish religion that uh, in the Old Testament, God cares about the afflicted. God cares about the widows and the orphans. In Roman and Greek culture, you didn't care about the lowly. You didn't care about the afflicted. It was about power. The only orphans that would be taken care of would be freeborn orphans, the ones of high status. And so you you can't just assume, yeah, here we're talking about pure religion as in uh, good deeds. These weren't considered just good moral deeds. These were laws from the religion that James is a part of. These are God's laws from on high. And he starts there on purpose. So we get into chapter two. He's starting with small things. And you have to understand he's starting with small illustrations of the law. So orphans and widows. And then he says, my brother, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. So he says that our faith is going to be demonstrated in our favoritism. That if we play favorites with people, for if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothes comes into your assembly and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in and you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and you say, sit here in a good place while you say to the poor man, you sit here or you sit over there or sit down at my feet. What has James just done? He shows with just a small thing like favoritism that there are large implications here, that you have demonstrated that you believe the rich person is better. And you've demonstrated that by how you spoke to them and where you set them down. And so you gave them a special place. You demonstrated your belief by your actions and your words. Okay, so keep that in mind. Remember, we're going to get back to the tongue. And he says you've demonstrated this by where you placed them and how you talk to them. And he he even makes the question, he says, have you not made distinctions? Okay, you have made a judgment. You have uh, given a judgment over people by playing favorites. And so he's saying, really, if we are going to have faith in Jesus, we should be just letting people sit down as they walk in. First come, first serve. You get in, just set them at the table, and everybody is equal. Everybody is the same. He says, listen, my beloved brothers, Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he promised to those who love him? Okay, so those who love him, promised to those who love him. Remember chapter one, don't lose that point. The kingdom, chapter one, don't lose that point. This is God's law. God has chosen. So remember what I said about the the orphans and the widows. James is referring to Old Testament practice. You should not forget that God has chosen the poor and the lowly. Okay. And he is here. He's already introduced the idea of the kingdom of God in his argument. He says, you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich, the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? Were you not called to honor the name of Jesus? the Lord of glory, this name that you consider honorable, they blaspheme. And this James is referring to uh, practices of the day, the dragging them into court. And And so he's saying, this is crazy that you would even show favoritism to the rich because they're the ones that mistreat you. And more than that, you are actually showing allegiance with them because when you dishonor the poor, you are the same as when they dishonor the name of Jesus. 
that when they dishonor the name of who you are called by, that is what happens when you dishonor the poor, when you show favoritism. Okay, now this is where uh, verse 8 is where James just takes it up a notch. He picks up tons of momentum here, and it gets uh, (laughs) uncomfortable. He starts stepping on toes. So uh, just bear with me here. Let's track here. James is going back to that mirror image, and he's about to tell us about things that we should be convicted of. He starts with the, the some lower-level laws, partiality, um, the poor, the widows, the orphans. And then he says, if you really fulfill the royal law, according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. Okay, so let's talk about that real fast. What is he saying in verse 8? One, what is the royal law? Well, we just talked about the kingdom. So there are laws at that time. You would have laws that are for uh Uh, government, things like that. But a royal law is something that a king could say. And when the king says it, it's done. Um, Different kind of uh, approach, really. Still a law, but a little bit of a a trump card, if you will, that you can just, the royal law is above. It is over everything else. And this royal law is most likely connected with what he just previously said about the kingdom. Okay, so we're talking in this, uh, this realm of kingdom language, a king, a royal law. And where is this royal law according to the scripture? He says the one according to scripture. So there's two things you have to have in mind here. One, pay attention to the Sermon on the Mount. James has a lot that echoes the Sermon on the Mount, which we'll see here even more in a little bit. But Jesus, one, Jesus, it seems here Jesus uh, Jesus is the royal law, the king that James is referencing. And Jesus says, I did not come to destroy the Old Testament law, but I came to fulfill it. And in that fulfillment, that message on the mount, Jesus makes some points that he takes the law further than what people were doing at the time, that he attacks their motives. And that's what we're going to get to here. This is why it gets really dicey. And James starts stepping on our toes is he um, he says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, which is exactly what Jesus said in the Gospels, where he says the whole law hangs on this point, that you love God and you love others as yourself, which is a quote of Leviticus chapter 19. And you have to understand Leviticus 19 is where we get holiness. Leviticus is the heart of the law of Moses. It is the middle chap- uh, the middle book of the law of Moses, the Torah, and it talks about our lifestyle our practices, our actions and behaviors because we are saved by God, delivered out of Egypt. We are his. And so he has requirements of us to show that we are his. And that's where holiness comes in. He says, be holy because I, your God, am holy. So act, behave in the way that is pleasing to me. But then he goes on to say, James goes on to say, but if you show partiality, you are committing sin. Okay, so he goes back to his previous argument. If you show partiality, favoritism, you're committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. Okay, so what he's making a point here to say is that don't forget that the the Ten Commandments, those big ten that we always look at, Don't say that those are the only ones you have to follow and we forget about all the other things that God cared about our conduct in the Old Testament. The law came from the same person, God. 
And so you can't say, well, I like this law because it was written by so-and-so, but I dismissed that law because it's written by somebody else. He's saying that if we are going to submit to one law, we submit to the full law because they're all from God. And so this is where he's pulling in that, that favoritism, the poor and the lowly, that we are supposed to be fulfilling all of it. And he says, do not commit adultery, an illustration Jesus used in the Sermon on the Mount. Do not commit murder, an illustration Jesus used in the Sermon on the Mount. In this, he has jumped to the extremes to make his point. He's saying, murder, we know, is connected to a motive. If you have hate in your heart, you're going to murder. That's where you have Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount. And here he is showing, he, this is the same kind of illustration that you have with the partiality, that you have shown your motives that you want to get things from people in the world when you set them at nice places on, at your table. When you show favoritism, you show who you really want blessings from. You've shown your allegiance. And so he makes this case by uh, putting a, a lower level command right next to a big one and right next to one that the motive is clear. And then he says, so speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. You're going to be judged. So make sure you do the right thing. Speak and act. And then he says, judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. And so this is where we're getting to a big, the, a real big push from James is mercy is not just mercy in a trial, but mercy is love in action. And so I disagree with the heading here in my Bible. It breaks apart verse 13 from verse 14. I think they go together. This is going to, to be a web that James is now concluding his argument. He says, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? Okay, that's not a random thought because look, he goes right back to the poor and lowly. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and no one of you says to them, "Go in peace," or sorry, and one of you says to them, "Go in peace, be warmed and filled," without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? And he says that's the same as faith without works. To tell somebody, "Oh, well, it's very nice. I'm, I, I believe with you that clothes are going to appear on your naked body." you will be taken care of. I believe it. He's saying that doesn't help the poor person. That doesn't help them. And this is where the actions are connected with your faith. And then verse 18, he says, he, he creates an argument, a hypothetical argument. Some of you will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works. I'll, I'll wait, you know, show me your faith apart from your works. And I will show you my faith by my works. Okay, now this is where he gets nasty. You believe that God is one, you do well. Okay, so he's saying, good job. You believe a core thing, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Ouch! He just said that if you are going to believe in faith alone, that if you think that faith alone is going to be able to save you, that faith in the one God, he says, you're as good as the devils. You're as good as the demonic, that you just have faith in one God, but to not live and to not act according to his desires and his will, 
You are no better than a devil. You are a foolish person. And I think this is a reference back to chapter 1, that introduction where James is setting us up. Because notice he says in verse 17, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. And what did James say that our temptation, our desires were going to lead us to? Death. And so that temptation coming from the enemy and that connection to death, I believe James is here pulling that in, that point again, that faith is not neutral, that you are going to serve one or the other, and that is going to be demonstrated in your actions. And so I think of uh, one of my favorite illustrations of faith is David Bernard. He says, if somebody comes into a room and says, the building's on fire, the building's on fire. And somebody sits in the room and says, oh, yes, it seems that I do believe the building is on fire. You are correct. But they don't get up and leave the room. They don't actually believe. If they believed, if they truly thought that you you were correct, that the building was on fire, they would get up and get out of the building. They would have activity. And here, James demonstrates that. He uses two illustrations. He uses the illustration of the... Uh, OG Abraham, he believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. But how did he believe God? What was the demonstration of his belief in God? It was his, his obedience, his pursuit of God, his submission. Just leaving his father's country is obedience. That is faith in God. But then also it shows that with Abraham, you have a lot of ups and downs in his life. He's not a perfect individual, but his faith is perfected. It's demonstrated as complete in the fact that through all of his ups and downs and where he gets things wrong, he ultimately believes in God and his promise because he is willing to sacrifice Isaac. Then he gives one final illustration, and this is contrasted with Abraham. Abraham is the epitome of the Jewish identity, the one who believes God, the one who follows God, the one who is righteous, the one who is in covenant with God. And then you have Rahab who is a prostitute, a Gentile sinner. But she has faith. It's not ups and downs when she believes in God. She also has it by action, but it's interesting that he uses these two illustrations, a Jew and a Gentile, somebody who has their faith perfected over time as they continue to submit to God, and then somebody who is honorable from the beginning in their faith in God. Those contrasts are so interesting to me. But then he concludes, he says, For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. And there's that death image again. And the spirit, uh, the body apart from the spirit is just what it sounds like. There's nothing crazy uh, deep there. He's making the point that when we see a body that is lifeless, that Genesis 1.26, that, that there is no breath of God in them, there is no spirit soul in them, that they're dead. In the same way, faith without action is dead. It's going to lead to death. Okay, that's why we want to pay attention to our actions and who we're submitted to is demonstrate who you serve. And that happens in every area of life. James isn't saying that we have to be perfect in in keeping all the law. Remember, he uses Abraham, but we are supposed to be perfect in our submission and ongoing pursuit of fulfilling the law. This is an important thing for what we're going to see in the rest of James. And in our next episode, we will be talking about chapter 3, and we're going to get back to the tongue. Not just our actions, but that one unruly member of our body, the small thing 
that's really going to do damage. This is getting to the heart of James's whole sermon, his whole message. And so that's what we're going to talk about in our next episode. And please let me know if you want to know uh, more, if you feel like something needs to be talked about more. I like participation more than just me talking. So uh, contact me, get in contact with me and let me know what you think. This is Breaking Theology. I'm Cullen Cressman, and I love all of y'all. And I hope this has been a blessing to your life.